0: From today's epistle of James, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Apparently James liked the subtle approach when writing an epistle. This passage calls to mind the apocryphal story you may have heard about the pastor who on the Sunday before he starts at his new church disguises himself as a homeless man And sits in the back pews during the first part of the service, just to see how he will be treated by his new flock. Most avoid him. A number of them encourage him to leave, and only a few are nice to him. When the assistant clergy announces his presence, all begin to applaud until he stands up and slowly walks up the center aisle of the church. He then basically shames them by reading a Bible passage about the poor, wonders how many of them actually follow Christ, then dismisses the service for the day. Why didn't I think of that when I started here? (laughs) (laughs) I call this story apocryphal, made up, a legend, but a version of that stunt actually did happen at a Methodist church in Tennessee and at a Mormon church in Utah. Their message is clear, as James tells us. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The writer of this epistle is traditionally thought to be James, the brother of Jesus, a central figure in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, and the leader of Christ's followers in Jerusalem after he dies. Now, as usual, we're not 100% sure who wrote this letter. Moreover, some biblical scholars believe this wasn't a letter at all, but a sermon gussied up to look like an epistle to the vaguely named 12 tribes in the dispersion. As I tried to craft my own sermon around this reading, I soon realized these scholars were probably right. This text was already preaching itself. There wasn't much more to say. The passage is pretty direct and pulls no punches. What good is it if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Like I said, subtle. If you are anything like me, you have often walked right past a homeless person asking for money and given them nothing. Like me, you might have justified your behavior to yourself by thinking they'd probably spend it on booze or drugs anyway. Or, I'd rather donate to organizations that help such people. That way I know my money is well spent. And, like me, you never followed up and actually made that donation. There are valid reasons to not hand out money willy-nilly to everyone who asks. In fact, that's our church's policy. Partly because there would be a line at my office door every day. And partly because money is... Not really what God is asking us to give. So it's important for us to hear passages like today's from James, blunt and without nuance, because those texts won't let us squirm out of our responsibilities to our fellow human beings. Not that the Bible isn't filled with such admonitions. In his first year of seminary, Jim Wallace the Christian writer and founder of Sojourner magazine, did a thorough study of the Bible with his classmates. They were looking for every verse that deals with the poor and with social injustice. They found thousands. In fact, one out of every ten verses in three of the Gospels and one out of every seven verses in Luke, our church's namesake. One fellow found an old Bible at home, and literally cut out every single text about the poor. Many of the Psalms and much of the prophets disappeared, and the book wouldn't even hold together anymore. That's how central God's concern is for the least among us. Yet none of those seminarians who did that experiment could recall a single sermon on the poor in their home parishes. There's a shower program for the homeless at the Los Gatos Methodist Church every Thursday. Last week I was asked to volunteer because they were once again shorthanded and would be unable to open unless I came. So I did, reluctantly. There actually wasn't much for me to do. So I fidgeted, checked my cell phone every two minutes for about 90 minutes and occasionally talked with the people who were there, many of whom I knew from our Tuesday food pantry. Boy, I was kind of annoyed. So many deadlines were waiting for me back at the office, and here I was just standing around. Why do they have to rely on priests to volunteer? Where's all the laity? Isn't this program supposed to draw helpers from every Los Gatos church, St. Luke's included? Well, my story does not have a hallmark-ready conclusion, wherein our selfish priest learns a valuable lesson about compassion from a saintly homeless man. However, I was graced with three insights. One, practice what you preach. From this pulpit, I am often saying things like, if you're Christian and it feels good, you're not doing it right. There I was, Father Cranky Drawers, unable to laugh at the irony of my own situation. Two, being homeless is really stressful. That may be obvious, but it becomes even clearer when you are in the midst of 10 homeless people and one is shouting and dancing around while two are talking at you simultaneously and you're concerned about what another one is up to outside. When I commented about this level of chaos to one homeless man there on crutches, He laughed and said, yep. And if you're not already one of the crazy ones, you either go crazy or have to live with a constant low-level stress at all waking hours. Three, I learned that despite being outcasts, homeless people, at least in Los Gatos, can sometimes create their own sense of home and community. I gave that guy on crutches that I spoke with a ride to his friends who live uphill from the Safeway on Santa Cruz Avenue. When I asked him about the tents that are along the creek that I've heard about, he said that some folks have a really nice setup in various out-of-the-way spots in our town. One woman, he said, even has a little outdoor living room with a carpet and chairs and a table. Somehow this cheered me up. I guess because it showed that Despite the pandemonium that can be present for these people in their lives, some still manage to carve out places of grace and safety for themselves. It's so hard to imagine having no sense of home or rest. So this story of them making homes for themselves made it seem a little more bearable. And actually, uh, there's a fourth thing that I learned that day and I keep forgetting and have to be reminded of. And that is that, if you are kind and gracious and look someone in the eye, almost always they do the same to you. So I'm going to take a page from the epistle of James and be blunt for a moment. What are you doing to help those less fortunate than you? Are you doing anything? What could you do? Can you start somewhere? Or... Can you do a little more than you're already doing? How are you being Christ's hands and feet in the world? And almost as importantly, when you do find yourself helping others, will you allow that experience to change you? Or will you hold it at arm's length? We are all beloved children of God. None of us are dogs who should be made to gather up the crumbs from under their master's table. Can you let that lesson truly sink into your heart? At our vestry retreat a few weeks ago, we heard a reading from a book called The Spirit of Love by William Law, an 18th century Church of England priest. Here's an excerpt. You have not the spirit of love till you have a will to all goodness at all times and on all occasions, you may indeed do many works of love and delight and delight in them, especially at such times as they are not inconvenient to you or contradictory to your state or temper or occurrences in life. But the spirit of love is not in you till it is the spirit of your life, till you live freely, willingly, and universally according to it. My hope is not to make you defensive, but to provoke you into thinking about what you do or don't contribute to your community for the betterment of those in need. It's a basic Christian message and we aren't challenged enough on it. I know I'm not, but I do take comfort in the fact that some of you in these pews are already doing so much. One of you is an attorney who spent time last month helping to reunite separated families at our southern border. One of you advocates in the San Jose courts for those who cannot do so themselves. And another helps people with their taxes every year who don't speak English. My prayer as your rector and supposed leader is that slowly but surely, we as a parish become that spirit of love, that Christ has called us to be. I leave you with a quote from John Wesley, one of the founders of Methodism, paraphrased by Jimmy Carter in a speech. I have one life and one chance to make it count for something. My faith demands that I do whatever I can, wherever I am, whenever I can, for as long as I can with whatever I have to try to make a difference. Finally, in the words of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, what you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. May we all find the strength to become a gift That gives others love. Amen.